Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. excited about today's guest because I know when I was in middle school um, and even a little younger, I was in, I was just so in love with stories. I was the kid who would go to a birthday party and bring a book along to read. And uh, my guest today is an award-winning middle grade writer, best known for Just Add Magic. Cindy Callahan um, has written many books and been nominated. Uh, she was also involved with the Emmy-nominated Amazon original series uh, based on Just Add Magic, which is now distributed worldwide through Nickelodeon. Her book, Saltwater Secrets, which is pitched as Big Little Lies for Tweens, has been acquired by a major studio. In addition to those, she has five well-loved lost-in books, Sydney McKenzie knocks him dead. The girl who ruined Christmas. Her newest, my big heart-shaped fail. Her niche, if you haven't guessed, is middle grade stories. She's unique in that she straddles both the book and the screen worlds. In addition to her published novels, she has a broad por portfolio of screen projects, ranging from six to eleven animation through YA. Cindy, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I have to ask, were you one of those kids when you were growing up who would basically sit in class and just stare out the window and make stuff up? Totally. totally. <laughs> I was too, actually. Yes. I was always, it's it's actually kind of an, an interesting um, dichotomy because I, I was always interested in stories of all kinds. Um, hmm. Campfire. Uh, we would listen to cassettes in the in the car when we went on long trips um, and movies and TV. Um, however, I wasn't a big reader, oh, which is very unusual for an author to say. I was a reluctant reader, um, and that has very much influenced hmm. my writing style. So while I didn't love reading, I always wanted to love reading. Oh, wow. Huh. I pretty much always had books out of the library and books in my backpack. Um, I really wanted to like them, but I, I didn't. I wasn't good at it. It wasn't fun and it didn't come easy to me. Yeah. And so I love that now you kind of see it as your mission to get kids to actually love reading. I mean, that's that's very cool. Um, uh, now, when you said campfire, did you guys do campfire stories, sleepover stories, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I went to camp uh, and oh, yeah. we would do, you know, ghost stories around a campfire uh -huh. um, or or things like that. We used to have a game as kids called Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board. Mm -hmm. And that involved like a spooky story. <laughs> um, and I and I loved that kind of thing. I just didn't actually like reading the words from the paper. Now, when I was in uh, college, I worked at summer camps. And that was really how I started to tell stories, uh, really. And um, what happened is I was looking for a way to calm the kids down at night um, because they're jumping off the bunks and everything. And so finally, my when I was a kid, my uncle had told us stories. And so I was like, all right, kids, I'm going to tell you a story. 
So they quieted down a little bit. I told them a story and they all fell asleep. And I'm like, I'm good. But then I thought, wait a minute, I just put all the kids to sleep in my cabin. So um, so I started telling all those stories. And then one night they stayed awake and they're like, do you know any more stories? And I like didn't. So I like, called my uncle up and I was like, I don't know what to do. I used up all your stories. And he's like, well, now it's your turn to take the baton. So that was kind of how I became a storyteller, you know, basically at camp telling those telling those stories. Yep. Good times. I have great memories of that. And and it's something I did with with my kids, too. I not I read aloud to them a lot from uh-huh. books, but then also we were always sort of telling stories, driving in the car. And if you see something or a spooky house in the distance, we say, "Ooh, you know, do you think a witch lives in that house? <laughs> and, you know, lots of imagination. I always had and I still do have a very big, vibrant imagination. Now, we're we're just past Halloween. And so now we're talking scary stories for a second. But but when I was a kid around this time of year, we would have these sleepovers and you would have like you would pass like a grape around and you'd be like, OK, this is an eyeball. And then like spaghetti noodles. And you're like, oh, this is God's so I mean, stuff like that. <laughs> and I still remember doing that goofy stuff. And um, I told my daughter she was going to she's 23 anyway. So she was having friends over for Halloween. I said, like, you ought to do this. It's like, I never did that when I was a kid. Like, what? How did you, how did I miss out on teaching you the eyeball thing with grapes and everything? But um, I did that once my youngest daughter, I did it with her kindergarten class. I put them in paper bags. So I had the kids put their hand in, but they didn't know. And I, and the the bag was just labeled like eyeballs. Oh no! Lift their hand in. And (laughs) one of the little girls started crying. Oh no. And I didn't know if I should feel really bad for her or feel like I had done a great job because it <laughs> because worked. You terrified her. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now when you think of middle grade readers, what's kind of the target age group for you? Yes. So middle grade is narrow. And, and what I mean by that is most middle grade readers, and it does depend a little bit on reading ability level, mm-hmm. but in general, they're about eight or nine till about 12 years old, oh, maybe okay. stretched to 13 years old. Um, but for me, the nine, 10, 11, 12 is really my sweet spot. And that's the biggest chunk of middle grade readers. Yeah. Because it's narrow, kids outgrow me very quickly. Hmm. So if they you know, don't consume all of my books, let's say within a 24 month period, Huh. They're they're too old for me. Either they're too old, like socially, mm. and my themes and stories don't appeal to them, or their reading has advanced so much in those twenty four months that they're ready for for the next thing. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Now, when you write for that age group, kind of that narrow window, are your like main characters, your protagonists, and so on, sort of that age, or maybe a year or two older? What's what 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 are they doing? Yeah. Yeah, my my main character is almost always 13 and in eighth oh, wow. grade. And the reason I do that is because kids have a tendency to read up. Yeah. They very rarely read down. They, mm. There's this um, obsession to want to know what are, what are the older kids doing? Yeah. So eighth grade is is a good time um, for for many reasons. First of all, socially, there's a lot of change happening mm. right in that that 13 year old time frame when um, kids are maturing socially at different rates. 
um, and kind of getting ready to go to high school. So there's a lot of opportunity for social conflict, hmm. which I like. Uh, and if I set um, my story in eighth grade, then I'm pretty sure I have the fourth, fifth, sixth, and sometimes seventh graders. But I probably don't have eighth graders. Huh. Yeah, but I have yeah. those those grades younger. So I strategically try to place myself on what would be called the upper end or the upper middle grade end, oh, sure. so that I can get um, more more readers that are reading up. That makes complete sense to me. I did a couple of young adult novels um, back a number of years ago, and um, and I sort of did the same thing. I don't know that I specifically had that phrase for it, but yeah, I was shooting for about two years over. Uh, like my protagonist was about two years older than my target readership. And I think that's a good point that, you know, kids tend to do that. And I like how you mentioned they're curious, you know, about what is it like to be a little bit older and they look up to that age group and things like that. Um, yeah, so it is challenging in that, um, obviously, being middle grade, even if it's upper middle grade, at least for my books and, and you know, my readers and the parents expect very clean books. Mm -hmm. So th so there's nothing edgy, no bad words, um, but to still keep it fun and funny and exciting, because I have to think, even though the my main character's 13, a child as young as eight could be reading that book. Yeah. So I need to be really careful of um, the messages, the vocabulary, um, but still keep it exciting. That is cool. Now, when you're creating stories, you want them to be fun, funny, exciting, um, but not too edgy. That's a, kind of a narrow, you know, <laughs> line to walk because it's easy to get a little, maybe too edgy or something like that. But when you're when you're creating these stories, what's kind of going through your mind is that, you know, are you thinking about, okay, look, I'm nine or 10 years old. What am I interested in? Or how do you sort of approach that narrow kind of window? Um, so I do a couple of things. Uh, first, I try to think of what, as a reluctant reader, mm. if there was a book about fill in the blank, would I have wanted to read it huh. at that time? So what what would have appealed to me at that time, I have to marry that with something that appeals to me now, because if I'm going to be spending hours and hours and hours with the project, I want it to be something that I'm interested in and I like writing about. Um, and then I need to think of how can I interject the funny, mm. the silly, the outlandish, um, that's not edgy and also that keeps my characters safe. So uh, what I mean yeah. by that is, we want the gang, the 13 year old gang to be generally unsupervised, right? Because that's the fun, but I need to keep them safe. So that has two challenges. It's who's watching them huh. and how are they getting from place to place? Huh. So in each book, I have to come up with sort of a creative chaperone, a creative slash <laughs> visible chaperone. So it might be like, um, the wacky neighbor. It might be the older sister who's really just up in the attic doing her own thing. Or you know, there needs to be some adult-like figure close enough so that I feel like I'm keeping them safe. Thanks. Then the second challenge is how to get them from place to place, especially in the Lostin books where in each one there's a 13-year-old not literally, but who has an adventure in a foreign city. Oh, and how uh, can I get them around when they don't drive 
you know, they're not riding bikes through Paris um, or LA or, you know, how can I safely get them from place to place? And that that's fun too, to, to find solutions for that. A lot of children's uh, stories always seem to give the kill the parents off and like the kids are orphans or and i think it's because we want the main decision maker to be a kid you know like the protagonist or whatever but but yeah keeping them safe is and supervised in a way is i was just thinking of like the chronicles chronicles of narnia like the kids kind of have these adventures but I guess it's the uncle I think is maybe watching over them or, or something like that. And, but yeah, kids stories almost always have like one or both parents are out of the picture. It's, it's, it's crazy. Or at least on the adventure for some yeah. reason. And I need to come up with a good reason that they're on their own. And usually I need to find a situation where the kids actually know more than the adults. Huh? Right. The kids are the ones solving the, while yeah. they might not be hardcore mysteries, mm -hmm. you know, the kids are solving the problem or the mystery. And it's something that either adults uh, don't want to do, don't agree with, don't believe in. Huh. But the kids know more or have more gumption for the solution than the adults do. No, I like that. That's a lot of interesting things to think about because, you know, whenever you're writing a story for this age or telling a story for this age, you want to affirm their you know, courage, uh, maybe cleverness and things like that. But also, like you said, keep them safe. That's yeah. fascinating. I like that. Um, when you're approaching your stories, okay, this is interesting for me is like, how do you, how do you manage to be cool without trying to be cool? Because like, by the time your book comes out, whatever seems to be cool today, like right now will be like, what? Nobody talks that way. Nobody says that. Nobody does those things. How do you manage that? It's certainly challenging. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know that I necessarily like try to be cool. So come, be cool just comes very naturally oh, to me. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. <laughs> I'm teasing you. But um, definitely the lingo mm. um, can get dated really quickly. But you want to keep it sort of current or trendy so that mm the readers at that time are, are into it. So it is it is tough. I almost never reference, uh, if I have a celebrity uh, in oh, one of the books, I don't use a current real celebrity, I make a fictional celebrity so that um, they could always be in the popularity of the, the zeitgeist of my story, my fictional uh, story. Yeah. And it's not like if I picked Zac Efron 10 years ago and now he's like 30, so you know, <laughs> No reader who reads my book would would have that appreciation for him. Um, so I use a fictional celebrities. And um, as far as lingo, I often try to have them come up with their own like weird catchphrase or uh -huh. abbreviations. So it might not be something that's in, that's in style or trendy at the moment, but it is for my gang at that time in the world that they're living in. You just affirmed me because that's what I did in my YA books a couple of years ago. Like this one girl would always make up these sayings and like they didn't really exist. She's like, that was cosmic. And they're like, that's not even a thing. Like nobody says that. And she's like, they will trust me. Yeah, exactly. They will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's. Of course they do. I just did. I just made it up. I know. Right. <laughs> um. So a lot of it kind of in my perspective or my view like stories are based on uh tension struggles that people have if 
they want something, they can't obtain it or overcome it and things like that. So there's always struggles at the heart of, of stories. So I'm curious how you come up with struggles that your readers will um, maybe even identify with, but maybe even be going through on their own um, and try to show them, you know, maybe positive ways of handling some of these difficult times. Do you ever really like brainstorm? Okay, here's the struggle with my character. How do you approach that? So um, I try to have, have two things going on at the same time. One is sort of the um, the biggest conflict in the plot, mm. which is, again, I follow a mystery formula, even though all of my books are not necessarily mysteries. There's not a, a dead body or a criminal per se, but there is a mystery of sorts that the kids are trying to solve or a problem the kids are trying to solve. So that's the first thing I come up with as a conflict. And then um, at the same time, I have my gang that are 13 years old and there's conflict between them. And a lot of that is at that age, either some are maturing more quickly. It might be that one's starting to have an attraction towards the opposite sex or one is um, maybe a little less mature and is still interested in things that the rest of the gang isn't. Um, And that that creates a, a lot of conflict in eighth grade friendships and friendships and being accepting of friends mm. is is always one of the one of the key themes that are is, is at least in the undercurrent of all of my stories. I mean, that totally makes sense because I feel like that age group nine to eleven, they're really trying to find friends, be faithful to friends, understand what a betrayal is and promise making and promise breaking. And in my pers- kind of in my background, it seems like working with that age group, they're also very concerned about things being fair. Like they want life to be fair and life isn't always fair, but they're like, well, that's not fair. If something happens, nice to happens to someone else. And they're like, wait, that's not also- fair. It's also a time when things can be a huge catastrophe. So losing a friend, not that at my age, I don't want, certainly don't want to lose a friend in eighth grade. If you lose a friend or you think you're going to lose a friend Mm -hmm. or you think you're going to be socially embarrassed is, is feels like the end of the world. Um, And that is their reality yeah. it might sound overly dramatic for you and i to talk to now but when they are in the situation that is their reality that i can't go to school tomorrow because someone's mad at me i didn't do my homework i don't have the right socks like what, mm. whatever it might be to them it is very very real um and dire i think that being as a writer, being able to kind of understand what your characters and what your readers are going through is pretty huge. And like when you mentioned how important it is to those, to your readers and to that age group, I feel like it shows that you've done a lot of thought about empathizing with your characters and things like that. Um, You know, one thing that I really like about stories that work well for this age group is that they don't sort of like, they're not condescending. Like they don't speak down to kids. Sometimes if I read a story or a book, it's like, okay, I can tell that was written by someone my age or older or whatever. It's just like kids are, they're almost like, they're not affirmed as much for just being kids. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when you um, when you create fun and funny adventures, what's funny to that age group? Well, like the most obvious thing that comes to mind is it's still farts and bodily functions. <laughs> are, they're always funny. They're funny now. They're definitely funny then. That's so um, funny. Yeah. <laughs> food and pigging out is super funny. Hmm. Um, costumes and dressing up or like thinking that they can um, disguise themselves. Oh, yeah. Um, super funny. Um thinking that they can you know thinking that they can do the outlandish like they they literally can go on a movie set number one that they can get on a movie set and number two <laughs> because they've put on dark sunglasses no one's going to know that they're like <laughs> average 13 year olds and um and that's what's funny i think it's just putting them in these outlandish huh. situations that you think hmm they think that could happen. Um, when I think, I'm trying to remember, you know, some of the outlandish adventures and stuff that I had when I was 13 years old. And you're right when you say it was, it's a big um, transition time. There was a, did you ever see the movie 13 that came out a number of years ago? Um, I think it was written by a teenage girl who had been, through some difficulties, and I think she wrote it with her English teacher, maybe. But anyway, I still remember this one line from the movie. There was a girl who met another girl and basically grew up very quickly <laughs> with some of the things that she was um, uh, shown and, 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 and experienced and so on like this. And so I think the mom said something like, before he, she met you, she was playing with a Barbie doll. <laughs> and, and, uh, and now she was definitely not playing with a Barbie doll. So, yes, is interesting age group. Throwing siblings into the mix can sometimes lend to either um, impediments for them to get where they need to do. So all of a sudden, let's say the gang, they're all ready to take off. They have their whatever bicycle helmets. They're ready to go. <laughs> and, oh, you got to watch your little brother or you got to uh... watch the neighbor's cat. And so now they're on their bicycles with the cat in a backpack and the little brother <laughs> in a in a wheelbarrow and like so siblings can add a lot of a lot of humor and color to the story also um and and, uh, and more drama because if all of the kids don't maybe relate to the younger sibling uh in one of my books i had you know the the older one lo loves the younger sibling and one of the other kids says something about you know ditch them or leave them behind mm. and well, we're not going to leave my little brother behind. <laughs> um, so it's it's another place where there's differences. There are differences of opinions. Um, but uh, I love having the colorful, particularly younger siblings that are a pest uh, involved in, in the situations, too. And that's pretty honest, too. I mean, literally, that is a very common thing. If you're that age group, oh, can you watch your sister? Can you watch your little brother? And, and they don't want to necessarily because... <laughs> It slows them down and it maybe isn't as cool or whatever like that. Um, now, you've worked in writing a stories, novels, and you've also worked in the screen uh, play world. Um, are there certain storytelling principles that seem to um, work really well for both realms? Or are there some that are very kind of specific for one realm instead of the other? 
there's really a, a lot of a lot of difference. So if you picture, you know, a screenplay, a, a movie, the visual is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. So a facial expression isn't when it's written in the script, but you see a facial expression and then that facial expression tells the viewer, the person consuming the story, it tells them a message, you know, the, the, the physical scene of what they're in, of where they are. Um, so let's say the North Pole, for example, the North Pole looks a certain way. But if I want it to be like a sad day at the North Pole, I can make it cloudy and the snow is dark and dreary. So all of these things that create the look, the mood and the tone, the the images and do the heavy lifting. Hmm. However, on the book side, you have to describe all of that in a way that your reader can 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 feel it. Your your viewer or your reader, they feel the story, but they're in one hand they're getting it in visuals and in the other hand they're getting it in words. The other really big difference is in on the book side, my um, character can have internal thoughts and internal dialogue. Sure. And on the screen side, they really can't. I mm. mean, I can have a character that that we might see someone that looks pensive. <laughs> but we don't know what they're thinking unless there is a voiceover um, or unless someone's articulating it. Yeah. So how you communicate, it's all about effective communication, how you communicate what you want your consumer of the story um, to feel is is done differently. Yeah, people that I've spoken with have said, you know, when you write a screenplay, you have to externalize kind of like everything that's internal. Um, so if they're feeling, you know, uh, sad, pensive or something like that, you've got to find a way to make that evident to people. That is a very different skill, I think, than sitting down to write a description of, of someone or, or climbing into their thoughts for the story. Yeah, and it's definitely the screen side is something that's much more new to me. Um, and I'm definitely a novice uh, in that regard. I mean, honestly, I still consider myself a novice on, on the book side too, even though I've been at it for a really long time, I'm always learning. And I feel like writing is a muscle that you continue to work. And the more you work it, the more it improves and the more it grows. Um, but one in, in the screenwriting that I have done, and again, it's not nearly as much as I've done on the novel side, I feel like it has really sharpened my dialogue skills hmm. um, by, by toying around on the screen side, my, dialogue in my books, I think has gotten much, much stronger. So when you're working on dialogue, do you try it out? Do you, are you sitting in your office talking in the different voices and, and um, kind of stepping into these characters? For sure. Um, even if I'm not necessarily saying them out loud, I'm definitely hearing them in my head. Mm. Um, and how can I, so if I want it to sound snarky, I have the word, my words, and I can have some body language, but you know, how am I going to get across to my reader that this is really sarcastic or really snarky? And how can I make sure that that comes, that that comes through? And that's where critique partners come in really handy because then I can have a dialogue and say, if you were to read that line out loud to me right now, how would, how would you read it to me? The way that it's, the way that it's written, how do you think it sounds? How does that dialogue sound in your head um, to know whether or not I've hit the mark? I think that um, is a good way. I'll, yeah. I'll also often do, um, and I write a lot like out at coffee shops and I must be really amusing to watch because I might be trying to write um, 
you know, maybe how someone looks at their watch and I'll be like, all right, how would I, how do I describe this motion? What do I call this? And I only want to, you know, I want to use as few words as possible. Is it a flick of the wrist? Is it a twist of the wrist? Is it, I'm turning my wrist over? Is it, you know, how do I describe these, these different things? It's so funny. I remember I was a book I was working on many years ago called the night and the opening scene um, there, they go to this old mine shaft and I was like, do I write, they walked up to the mine shaft. They walked toward the mine shaft. They came to the mine shaft or whatever. I mean, I, I literally spent like an hour or two just trying to, which preposition did they walk toward to up to, but then oh, it was ridiculous. I'm like, that's my life. Welcome to my life. You know, I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> you want it to be, um, brief if possible but evocative and um i think i think the way that you described using a critique partner sounds very helpful i know sometimes i don't always encourage critique partners as much or or well how, let me say it this way like a critique group where you go to it and there are certain people like there's the there's the a jaded criticizer who finds something wrong on everything. There's like the comma queen who wants to add a comma to every page of your man. There's like the kindly grandmother who brings cookies and loves everything you write and owns a cat. I mean, you have the kind of the same people at, at different critique groups. And, but if you have people that know what they're doing and, and I feel like you can also say basically what you did, like when you're experiencing this or when you're reading this, are you confused? Is it believable? Is it not believable? What does it sound like to you? All of that, I feel like it would be very helpful, you know, to get that perspective. But so, but very often what happens, someone will read something and people will say, oh, I think you should do this, blah, 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 blah. And then the other person is like, oh, but I was trying to. And so it's like accuse and defend, accuse and defend. And that that doesn't help. But But I love the idea of allowing them to read it and then ask, you know, what do you picture or how does that sound to you? Because even if they're not like an experienced author, their experience as a reader is legit. And, you know, what they're going through matters, you know? Yeah, for sure. I've had, um, you know, a variety of different critique groups and critique partners. Um, and I've certainly kissed a couple of frogs, but I've been really lucky <laughs> to have have had some excellent critique partners um, throughout my throughout my career. And uh, I do think that they're worth their weight in gold. Um, and like you said, there is and even even the comma queen. I am I'm the typo queen. Like I am so <laughs> bad at that stuff that I am like, give me every comma that's wrong. Mm. I need like, I really, really need that so that when I send it to my agent, it doesn't look like, a, you know, a comma disaster. <laughs> um, so I've, I put value in all, in, in all of the, in all the comments, kind of the good, the bad and the ugly. I think as long as, and I can handle all of them as long as they're delivered with kindness and, yeah, with, you know, not, and not with any malintent. Um, and I've been lucky to not have had any critique partners that have been vindictive in, in, in any way. Yeah, no, that that's a good way to look at it. Um, you, I was in a critique group one time and it seemed like there were some people like what you just said, almost vindictive or they mm -hmm. almost like found pleasure in pointing out what They'd been to a seminar and you didn't have a good enough hook. So they were going to tell you all about that. And 
was like, come on, this is not helping me out right now. Yeah. And when I have, when I have experienced things like that, I do try to look in it and be like, okay, I, I didn't like the way that was delivered at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, um, but there was a point, there was a good point in, in what was said, That's, which yeah. maybe my, my hook isn't strong enough. I mean, it, you, you said it like a jerk, but, um, <laughs> but your point is still valid. And I don't want to be in a critique group with you anymore. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's very positive of you to be able to do that. I mean, that's not an easy skill. And, you know, it's easy to be with someone. I was talking with someone and he said, it's easy to be precious. I don't know if that's a saying or it was something he came up with, but I liked it. it he's like, yeah, don't be too precious with your writing. can't remember who said that. Have you ever heard that saying before or is it? Did um, he make that so up? So it's, it's interesting. I think that term has come in much more popular recently. So yeah. I worked for years and years at the, a UK based pharmaceutical company and I'm not precious was something that the Brits would say, huh. I, I would hear them say. Um, and then I applied it once in a while to the writing world and I, I'm hearing it more and more frequently in, yeah. in the writing realm in the U S. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I always liked that. Now, you have a book that just released recently, My Big Heart-Shaped Fail. Tell us about this story and maybe kind of the backstory behind it or anything about everything has an origin story. And I'm always interested to hear what those might be. Yeah, I, I love, love, love this book. And I'm, I'm so excited that it's out and it's getting some some really positive feedback, which is always nice because then that means that what I was hearing in my <laughs> head, maybe other people are actually hearing. But I think that it along with the two books that preceded it, The Girl Who Ruined Christmas and Saltwater Secrets, really have epitomized the, my style. I feel like it's, you know, it took me a good decade to sort of define what I wanted my style to be. And I think it's this fast, funny, fast paced. Hmm. Um, and I and I know that you interviewed James Patterson just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I, inter I also interviewed him uh, in New Jersey a couple of weeks before you did. So oh, I was wow. I'm sure that I'm sure that he asked you uh, about me, but um, he he's one of the people I think that's among others who's greatly influenced me because his work is is easy to read and it's fast and fast paced. Yeah. Um, and easy reading is hard writing. Um, huh. And my my last three books, particularly my big heart shaped fail, I have really tried to strip out mm. any unnecessary exposition and kept the sentences short, the paragraphs short, and the chapters short, while including everything you, everything you need for a colorful, rich story. Yeah. Um, it is a tween comedy of errors. <laughs> um, I won't say that it was necessarily inspired by A Midsummer Night's Dream, but it does have that sort of feel to it with mixed communication surrounding messages. Um, so what happens is my main character, who is Abby, and she's 13, she um, has been keeping some secrets from her best friends um, because she doesn't know how these secrets are going to land with them, um, which, as we just talked about, is kind of typical of that eighth grade year. I'm not really sure how my friends are going to feel about this, but she feels terribly, terribly guilty that she has kept these secrets. So what she does to assuage her guilt is she writes them down on pieces of paper, folds them up, ties them to the end of balloon strings, 
And then according to her crackerjack math calculations, she <laughs> figures out which way the wind is moving and where the balloons are going to land and biodegrade over the huge forest. <laughs> However, that night, a creepy wind comes through town and it blows the balloons right over her school ah. where they drop one at a time throughout the day. Ah, I like that. Um, That's very interesting. This, the book is told like the TV show 24 uh, and every chapter is a day of uh, a day, an hour of the school day. And oh, every wow. hour, the tension gets worse as Abby is trying to not be discovered as the author of these notes. And, and it, the tension just rises throughout the day. That is super interesting. Um, just to, just from perspective of a fellow author and, uh, you know, storyteller, I love that concept or conceit of like that more and more can land at, um, you know, at different times and kind of escalate the tension. That was a, that was a very clever idea. Thank you. Thank you. It started with one note, uh, and then it, and then it grew to five. Um, and that just, you know, makes much, much more chaos around the school hallways. <laughs> and of course, I, you know, whoever gets the note thinks it's from you and you wrote it and gave it to them. And then so-and-so thinks it's from them. And it creates all of this, this mix up and miscommunication throughout the whole school day. Even the teachers get involved in the miscommunication. Do you use miscommunication sometimes for humor? Because I feel like it, it's, it can be used very well for creating tension, but also, you know, he said this and she thought this and, and, and that seems like can be a staple sometimes for humorous or, or comedic situations. Yeah, for sure. And the, the the interesting irony is that the majority of my career I spent in business communications. And so um, I have, it's a lot easier making miscommunications than effective written communications. So um, it, it's great fun. It lended to, I think, really good comedy. No, that's awesome. So now is this, are the characters, uh, is it's a series. And so you've introduced the characters before, or is this the first time that these characters appear? This is a standalone. Okay. Um, all of my books are standalones with the exception of Just Add Magic and its sequel, Just Add Magic 2. Hmm. Even the Lost In books, even though they're all titled Lost In, fill in the blank, um, are each a different gang of kids. And in fact, they were all written um, under different titles. And when Lost in London, which is the book that came out first, sold so very well, the next book I was working on, which was called Pardon My French, was huh. retitled to Lost in Paris. There you go. And the another one I was working on, which was called Pizzeria Matchmaker, was <laughs> retitled Lost in Rome. Um, and so the story goes, Lucky Me became Lost in Ireland, so that they were wow. they're, they're set or a uh, an anthology. Now, that's pretty interesting. A lot of people will always ask, oh, do I have to read all your books or which one should I start with? But it sounds like this one's a perfect one to start with, the, the latest one. If people aren't familiar with your stories, be like, all right, definitely, I'll I'll give that one a shot. Now, um, would you say, um, I mean, this is a perfect time for people to buy holiday gifts for their kids. So I think, I mean, this sounds like a perfect gift for for your kids or grandkids um, that uh, that you might pick up? 
For sure. I mean, the beauty is they could buy as many of them as they want. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. We want them to do that. So, um, Read, but 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 seriously, reading reading is a wonderful gift. Yeah. Um, and I really try to target reluctant readers as one as I was one. Yeah. Um, I think I missed out on a lot of things because I wasn't a reader in my in my tweens. And if if there's a book that it can bring someone into the to the market and into the joy of reading, mm. um, that's what I've tried to create. So particularly a gift for someone who might not be a big reader yeah. yet, the, the real gift you can give them is introducing them to a book that might bring them into the fold of reading. I love it. That's a great way to look at it. So so people are listening and you're like, well, my son my daughter or whatever they don't read that much they don't love it this is a perfect book to give them a shot give it a shot and say like maybe they've been tackling things that aren't age appropriate or aren't challenging enough or interesting enough but um but um that would be this would be a great place to start with cindy's latest book and um again the title is my big heart-shaped fail so this has been super interesting i really enjoyed the conversation before we close up i have Two final questions. I started asking people these questions. I don't know why or when exactly, but they've been very interesting to me. So what the first one is, what is one book besides yours? Well, let's say one novel or a fictional book besides yours that everyone should read before they die. <laughs> Can oh, you think man. of a book? I know I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but like, is there a book that maybe influenced you or one that actually helps you to fall in love with, with reading? Yeah. So there's a couple, but the, the, the one that really turned me on to reading, which wasn't until my young adulthood, yeah. um, was one of Michael Connolly's book. Michael okay. Connolly is a mystery writer who is insanely popular right now for a very good reason, because his books are amazing. I don't know why his book, The Poet which is the one that turned me on to Michael Connolly and on to reading and on to writing seems to be one of his lesser known novels. And I don't quite understand it, but the poet um, was a book that I bought when at a borders books and music in whatever it was, the early nineties, <laughs> I paid for it with waitressing tip money oh, wow. and it really opened my eyes to thrillers yeah. love of thrillers and i started devouring not only michael connelly but james patterson and, my, and john grisham and and the, a very very long list fell in love with thrillers and thrillers really have influenced the way i write my middle grade books because of their fast-paced yeah. um and always constant motion if i remember the poet's kind of a dark story yeah it's, i might be um, thinking of the wrong one but if i remember right Maybe there's a killer and sort of the serial killer, maybe. Anyway, but no, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's super interesting. So yeah, if people haven't checked that out and you like thrillers, you might check out Michael Connolly's, you know, earlier book there. And then uh, normally I've been saying to people, what do you wish you could tell your younger self back when you were a teenager? But I have to ask you back, what would you love to tell yourself back when you were like the age that you're writing about maybe i guess 13 you know 12 or 13 what do you wish what message do you wish you could get back in time to yourself so i th i think i didn't 
I don't think I loved being 13. Yeah. I think I wanted, you know, when I was 13, I wanted to be 15. When I was 15, I wanted to be 17. <laughs> I wanted, you know, wanted to drive, wanted to be able to, to go out. Um, and so I think the message I would give myself is probably, <laughs> it really will get better. <laughs> no, that's I think good, I though. You I know. didn't love that. I, di- I didn't love that age. Um, it's a very awkward, it's a very yeah. awkward age in, in life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's tough. And and so, um, yeah, if you're listening and you are that age, have no fear. Do not worry. Yes. <laughs> so, well, uh, anyway, um, Cindy, thanks so much for being on uh, the show today and for just your your willingness to share a little bit about your stories, a little bit about your writing journey. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. Now, Cindy, where's the best place for people to connect online if they want to find out about your newest books or or maybe film projects that you might have? Do you have a website or online presence? I, I'd like to say I'm everywhere. Um, <laughs> I, I have my website and I do keep it up to date. I'm on Instagram um, and and Facebook. I, I'm actually, well, I'm not, I'm parodying a song um, today if you want to check that out. And I just started TikTok and I'm not very good at it, so be kind. <laughs> But um, but I'm working on that, and I and I dabble a little bit in Twitter. Oh, that's no, that's cool. People can track you down. That'll be good. And um, I also want to take a moment and thank our listeners. Um, thank you for um, giving this podcast a shot, and and uh, for more info about our other guests and to check out other interviews, you can always search for us wherever you listen to your podcasts, or always click to thestoryblender.com for more info and for uh, bios and archived um, uh, episodes and so on. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye.